Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 29 in the book of Hebrews titled Faith, Assurance, and Conviction, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we have moved into this incredible section of scripture uh, called by many Christians the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of not just what we're going to see in 1 through 7, but really what we're going to see in this whole chapter and why it's so important in the book of Hebrews and important for the Christian life? Yeah, I think it's really important for us to understand what the author is trying to do here. We've given consistently a three-part outline to the book of Hebrews. The, uh, the book is written to Jewish people who had made an outward uh, profession of faith in Christ, but who were being pressured to forsake that confession of faith and turn back to Old Covenant Judaism. And so the author is writing, and he gives, I think, a good three-part outline uh, of this book would be that Jesus is a superior mediator who brings to us a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life. So now, as we, as we move over into Hebrews 11 and following, we're going to be looking at the third aspect of that, the superior life. And we can sum it up simply. It's a life lived by faith in the Son of God, that uh, people are living openly and courageously by faith in Christ through uh, prosperity, we're going to see in the book of he- uh, uh, in Hebrews 11, but also tremendous adversity. And so both of those are covered uh, by brothers and sisters in reference to brothers and sisters who lived courageously as examples of faith. So we're going to see that. And for me personally and for all of us, I think it's a challenge. What kind of life am I living? Am I living by faith or am I living by sight? You know, am I am I walking in faith in the promises of God? Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith... Though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So Andy, the first question I want to ask you is just kind of a general question, you know, from Hebrews chapter 11, is how does the author define faith? And how does he put that faith on display in the examples he gives? Okay, so I think right away in verse 1 is a good definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he's going to see, he's going to put on display uh, the, the life of faith. A lot of times what we're going to see is uh, really the fruits of faith. Faith is assurance and conviction. That's, those are heart states. But out of that come all kinds of righteous actions um, that he's going to catalog for us. They're of all different sorts. But it really is the ability to, to see the invisible spiritual realms, past, present, and future, the ability to understand what's in those realms, to see God and His holiness, to see the future as it's, as it's promised by God or threatened by God, honestly, to see uh, negative aspects, judgment coming, as we'll see with the case of Noah, to see rewards coming, uh, as we see in the case of Moses looking ahead to his reward. So we see all of these things, the ability to look ahead and see a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So it's just that ability to, to see invisible spiritual realities based on the Word of God and then act accordingly, act courageously based on that faith. So that's what we're going to see. But if you ask, you ask about a definition, I think verse 1 gives you a really solid definition of faith. Yeah. Now, I want to unpack some of the details in verse 1 in this definition that the author gave that you just mentioned. Um, but, you know, one of the things we like to do as we, go th- as we work through books, looking at the details, we also we want to see the, the trees in the midst of the forest. And we want to also see the forest um, and not just see the trees. So let's back up and get a little perspective 
on the train of thought flowing from chapter 10, how is this situated in relation to what we just discussed the last three or four podcasts in chapters in chapter 10? Sure. There's, a, I think, a very strong connection between the end of chapter 10, Hebrews 10, and on into the very famous Hall of Faith of chapter 11. And all we have to do is just go back just a couple of verses into 1038 and 39. He says, my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. So you have a positive and negative aspect there. We're positively going to live by faith and we're not going to shrink back through unbelief. And we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So the idea is, well, what does the life of faith look like? What does it mean to live by faith, to walk by faith? My righteous one will live by faith. Hebrews 11 is given to answer that question. Even before that, he, he talks about the need for perseverance and how we need to run this race with endurance. And we'll talk about that later in chapter 12. But at the end of 10 and in 35, uh, 36, he said, look, we want you to persevere right to the end. And, and before that, in verse 34, he talks about the demeanor, the attitude they had in the earlier days when they first began. He says in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you had a better and lasting possession. And so... You could almost argue that the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to produce that kind of Christian mm -hmm. who is living such an otherworldly life. They are just so focused on heaven that they don't mind what they lose on earth. They're willing to live openly for God. And we're going to see that again and again in the book of Hebrews. These, these folks that live by faith were not tied to anything earthly, but they were looking ahead to rewards. And then even before that, then you get in 26 and following up through 30, 31, uh, that region, there's a very strong warning about, you know, and it, and it explains what it means to shrink back and, and be destroyed. If we deliberately go on sinning and we, we trample the Son of God underfoot and treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, then there's nothing left for you except for a fearful expectation and judgment of raging fire. So that's a, a terror uh, that is not here now. It's something that is coming later. And so that gives the context for the assertion in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for because you're confident that you have a better and lasting possession and the conviction of things not seen of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So there's the positive negative aspect. So anyway, that's, I think, how we see the context here. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So let's unpack that a little more then, the assurance of things hoped for. I know you've often called faith the eyesight of the soul. So how is faith the assurance of things hoped for? Okay, first of all, we just need to acknowledge how complicated or difficult this verse is to translate. If you, if you get out the King James Version and you put it side by side with, let's say, the English Standard Version, which is just a kind of a, an updating of the Revised Standard Version, they're very similar, and the New American Standard Bible and the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the New International Virgin, version. If you look at all of these, you're going to see a very surprising range of translations. Now, the King James was done by phenomenal scholars who really understood the Greek and the Hebrew and did, did excellent work, but the English they used is archaic, and we don't really speak that English anymore. But I must say that the King James translation of this is one of the stranger moments in the King James Version. Uh, what it says, I think, is now faith is the uh, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance and evidence. So they almost treat it as like a Hebrew parallelism. Yeah, a little bit. And, and it's just interesting why they do it. Now, the NAS, RSV, ESV, all, all are literally identical, I think. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that'll sound familiar because that's what you just read in the ESV. NIV says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. That's almost like saying the same thing twice. Um, I don't remember what the Holman Christian Standard Bible is, but um, maybe just similar to the other, the other uh, three. But for me, I look at the, the words, the Greek words that are translated here. And the Greek word that is translated by the King James Version, um, substance, is hypostasis, which literally means to stand under. Now, if you know anything about Latin, substance uh, is almost a transliteration of a Latin word in the Latin Vulgate. It's almost like they punted on translating it, and they just said it's the substance, but that would be the like the pillar supporter, that which stands under. 
something. That's the idea in terms of its raw linguistic basis. But the best translation really would be assurance. It's a sense of the certitude of those things that you hope for positively. And then the negative side, which we'll talk about, is conviction of things not seen. I think that's a very good translation, whereas the KJV is a bit suspect, which is evidence. So we'll talk about that in time. But you asked about the first half. The first half is what we call the positive side, things hoped for. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, The author, uh, uh, sorry, the book of Romans, Paul, Romans uh, chapter 8 says in a very powerful way, who hopes for what he already has? So, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So hope is linked to things we don't have yet. I would also say logically, who hopes for what he doesn't want or who hopes for what he dreads? We don't use the language of hope for things that we're afraid of or don't want to happen, negative outcomes. So we're talking about positive outcomes in the future, things we don't have yet. That's what hope does. So hope is a feeling or a sense in the heart with regard to future things that we don't have yet. Now, there are secular hopes, and we use a pale kind of language of hope, like, I hope it doesn't rain this weekend. We're planning a family outing. But it might rain. We're just having a wish about the future. Or I hope my team wins the national championship, something like that. You don't know that it will. You hope they do, but you have no sense of confidence about it. It's just a vague wish for the future. But biblical hope is something very different because ours is a supernatural, eternal faith given to us by an eternal God who knows the end from the beginning and tells us what the future holds and makes promises to us, sometimes conditional promises, sometimes absolute promises. Like an absolute promise is the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back. Whether we want him to or not, he's coming back. It's an absolute promise, not conditional. He just is coming back. And so for us, we hope he's coming back, meaning he will certainly be coming back. And because for us, it's positive as Christians, we're looking forward to it. We have a sense of the certainty of that future thing. Uh, There's no doubt about it. And so faith is what makes our hope certain based on the promises of God. Then there's some conditional promises that if we put sin to death by the Spirit, you know, we will be raised uh, to life. We are Christians, etc. If we, if we uh, sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. So if we give a lot of money away by faith uh, to the Lord's work, we're going to reap benefits from that. Those are conditional promises. Anyway, this is how I would look at it. Faith is the confidence, a feeling in the heart of certainty that the future is bright, that it's wonderful, based on the promises of God. So that's the first half of Hebrews 11. And what about the second half, where he says the conviction of things not seen? You alluded to this earlier, that has a negative aspect. Can you explain your insights on this word conviction and why it's so important for us to see both sides of faith? Well, the word that's used here is... think used only here in its in its noun form it's got another spelling in uh i think in second timothy 3 16 all scriptures god breathing useful for teaching rebuking for the rebuke correction training and righteousness but the verbal form is used a lot maybe like 20 times and in every case in every case it has to do with reproof or rebuke for sin. So the idea is like the word is used in this case. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. That's one translation. Go go convict him. Go prove to him that he has done wrong. And if he listens to you, then you've won your brother over. So that's Matthew 18. Um, But it also speaks of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So that's in John 16. Um, There are many, many such examples of the verbal form. And so I think that the English translation done by the ESV, the New American Standard, and the RSV of conviction is a good one. Now, when we think of conviction, like, Joel, when you listen to a sermon and you get done, you say, wow, that was really convicting. What do you mean by that? Well, if I say I'm convicted... That has to do with my internal sense of my own sin, um, the, the severity of it, and my, um, me being, that being brought to light to me and then you know, wanting to, uh, to take that to God and, and repent. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think we use the language that way. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, and more commonly, when you think of somebody that's convicted in a court of law, it means they're proved guilty. 
you know, the gavel's gone down, you're guilty, and then you get sentenced. Or somebody who is a convict was earlier in, in time found guilty in a court of law. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. It always has to do with sin. And it has to do with, with a sense or feeling that we are sinful, that we have done wrong. Like when Nathan, the prophet, pointed at David and said, you are the man, after he used that, that story about the, the rich man, the poor man, and the rich man had all this, these flocks and herds, and he has a visitor come, and the poor man you know, has uh, a little ewe lamb that he used to carry around, and he loved it, and, and the rich man took the ewe lamb, etc. Talking about David and Bathsheba, he took another man's wife, slept with her, she got pregnant, he killed Uriah. And so Nathan the prophet told this story to bring David to a point of conviction. David, I think, from Psalm 32, had been in denial. He was resisting confessing sin, and he was in denial about his sin. And so David got very angry about the story, didn't know what Nathan was doing, but got angry at the story and said, that man deserves to die because he took that poor man's ewe lamb. He should pay back fourfold or something like that. And then Nathan pointed the finger as the prophet of God said, you are the man. And then after he explained what he meant, what he was talking about, what God was talking about, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's conviction. You are the man. You're the one. You're the one that has had this lustful thought or this covetous thought or has done this sinful deed. You are the one that needs to change your lifestyle in terms of what you're doing with your money or your possessions or how you're raising your kids or what you're doing in your marriage or what you're doing in your prayer life or your thought life. You are the one. And so it's a convicting uh, action on the power of, by the power of the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to show us our sins. And so this also is by faith, to be able to see ourselves properly in the mirror of God's law and, frankly, in the light of Judgment Day. And if we look at the second half of the verse, it says the assurance of things hoped for. It says, secondly, the conviction of things not seen. And I think the thing not seen there is perhaps the invisible perfect standard of God's righteousness as reflected in the law, or it could be just the conviction of coming judgment day and the wrath to come. There's a terror and a fear of being found guilty on that day. And it, it brings to light the sense of the, the terror of the judgment of God. And I think we see this in a few verses later in verse 7 with Noah. It says, when, uh, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. The thing not seen in that case was the coming flood. And the coming flood is a, is a picture and a type and a shadow of the coming judgment day and the lake of fire that follows it. So the idea here then is that faith, putting the whole thing together, has a sweet positive side, assurance of things hoped for, that the future is bright based on the promises of God. Faith gives you that. But faith also convicts you of remaining in dwelling sin and how serious that sin is and that it's actually in our lives and it needs to be repented of. So it's got a positive and negative side to it. Now, when you preached this at FBC, did you get any people who were very surprised at this understanding of faith? Yeah, I think so. I mean, some of them were reading that translation and said, no, faith is the, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's like, wow, I didn't know it had to do with sin. I didn't know it had neg negative. Those that had the translation said conviction, they still hadn't thought it through. And it's like, well, what do you think conviction means? I have a strong conviction that Jesus is the Son of God. It's like, well, that's fine. But I don't think that's what the author's dealing with here. I have a strong conviction that I'm a sinner. And I'm sinful, not just, I know, I know, I, I'm a sinner. I know I do wrong things. No, 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 specifically. In this matter, you have sinned. And then the more I explain it, the more they see, you know, hey, we really need that. Mm -hmm. We're talking about holiness, talking about growth in holiness, sanctification. We need the Holy Spirit to come and show us where we have yet to grow. Where is the sin in our lives? So this is actually vital. Now, again, keep in mind, very important to keep in mind. Faith is temporary. I mean, we need it from, from now until the day we die or now until the second coming of Christ, but we will not need it after that. So we don't need the assurance of things hoped for when we have received them as our inheritance. And we will not need conviction of indwelling sin anymore because we won't have any indwelling sin. We will be righteous people made perfect. But from now until then, boy, do we need this. We need a confidence that the future is bright. And we need a clear knowledge of the remaining residual sin in us. Let me say one other thing about hope. I, I think it's helpful when it comes to things hoped for. Hope has to do with the future. And I think the future is anything from now on. So I think it's helpful to think of, of the future in terms of three stages. Let's start with the most important your eternal future. 
So by faith, I know that my eternal future is secure in Christ. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I believe that. I believe that I will live with Christ forever and ever. And not only that, that I will be raised in a resurrection body, glorious like his. It says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I believe that. So my eternal future is filled with hope. I know it's bright. Secondly, my future, my long range future from now until I die or till the second coming of Christ is bright because God's got good works for me to do. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. He's going to protect me from temptations. When I sin, he's going to convict me and bring me to repentance and restore me. And so from now until the day I die, that life is worth living, and I'm filled with good hope in that. And then short-term hope, well, that's like whatever's coming in the next day or so. You know, I look about look at this evening or tomorrow or different things, and, and whatever God has planned for me is good. So I think it's important for Christians to be filled with hope, but it's faith that gives us that hope. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really great definition, too, coming on the heels of chapter 10, because we see you know, the positive and negative, because this is a book of warnings. Mm-hmm. And the remedy to shrinking back is to heed the warning and look ahead to the reward. So this mm-hmm. definition seems very appropriate in the context. It does. It's beautiful. I, I think that, I don't think this is a comprehensive definition of faith. I think there are other aspects of faith. And in my book, An Infinite Journey, I talk about uh, a more full-orbed kind of defini- biblical definition of faith. There are other aspects to it. But I like the idea of it being the eyesight of the soul. And I like the fact that there's a sweet positive aspect that fills you with light and joy and and hope. And then there's the negative aspect that fills you with true knowledge of your sinfulness so that you can deal with it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about verse 2. He says, by it, and he means faith, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So how does this verse show just strong unity between the current believers you know of the New Testament or believers nowadays and our brethren who lived before the time of Christ sure commendation is praise praise from God and so you could say we're talking horizontal other human beings uh, testified that they're righteous people but I think especially it has to do with commendation from God and um, I, I think ultimately we have to believe that some of that commendation we never heard but they heard it you know, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, they, they fa- served the Lord faithfully in their own generation, and God commended them, but he commended them completely based on faith. Everything that they did, everything they did that was pleasing to him was done by faith. So I think that's what we would say. The ancients were commended for their faith and for nothing else, ultimately. The, every, everything good about them came because they, they saw the invisible God and walked with him by faith. So everything from Abel to Enoch, uh, Noah, all of these heroes, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're going to walk through all that in the, in the subsequent verses here. But all of these ancient heroes, men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, ultimately they are, um, are commended solely uh, by faith. So I think what we want to say here, uh, Romans 14.23 says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. But we would also have to say, conversely, everything that does come from faith is commendable. God would praise it and would, would bless it. So if you do anything by faith, uh, then God will reward it and commend it. Hmm. Well, now in verse 3, the author connects faith and understanding, which I think is, is really important. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It kind of bothers me when, when people uh, kind of pit um, faith and reason against each other. Right. You know, they say, who is it that said faith has reasons the heart doesn't know? You know? Yeah, I forget. I've heard and that I think, before. I think it was Pascal. Is Maybe it Pascal? So. Maybe so. I've, I've never liked that. How does verse 3 kind of shed light on how faith and understanding come together? Well, faith enables us to accept information from the invisible spiritual world or about the invisible spiritual world, ultimately from the Word of God, from Revelation. So I think faith always has its origin in the Word of God, ultimately. There is something called natural theology. And so we can look at sunrises and sunsets and, and physical things, nature, even human human beings who are fearfully and wonderfully made, all that. You can look at all that and you get a lot of information. Man, this is amazing. This is complex. This is marvelous. We also know that unbelievers can look at that and just delight in evolution. They can delight in nature or they can delight in science, Um, all of that. But for us as believers, we look at that and we understand by faith that there's a creator. 
to all of this. So we're talking about the faith-based conviction or certitude that there is a creator of all of these things. So this really brings us to, to the topic of creation. And ultimately, you have to have the gift of faith to believe in creation and a creator. It's something God has to give, it, give to you. You'll not get it from scientific means. So you could be a cosmologist studying the stars. You could be a biologist studying the complexities of life, a geneticist studying the, the amazing intricacies of DNA and of genetics. You can, you can study all different aspects of creation. You could be a zoologist studying different animal life or any of these sorts of things, a physicist studying uh, physics and the existence of subatomic particles and all of these things. You can look at all this and be a, a rank atheist. Uh, you can you can just so be wrapped up in the physicality of what you're studying, etc. You have to have faith, and faith is a gift of God in order to believe in a creator. And in verse 3, it also says that the universe is created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Um, so how is the word of God, and centering on that, and I think that's what the author is doing here, how is that central to faith? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have to realize, first of all, the primacy of the invisible and immaterial over the visible and the material. And so the invisible and immaterial God came before anything. God is before the word of God and God is before the universe. And so God is the start of everything. Just Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. So he's already there before he says a word, before he does anything, he exists. And so God starts everything and then God decides by the, uh, by the efficacy, the power of his word to create all things. So he speaks a word and it is so. Clear example of that is when he says, let there be light and there is light. And so the universe was formed by God's command. Let there be and there is. And we see that rhythm in Genesis 1 so powerfully. And so it's vital for us to understand the primacy of God's word because Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing the word and the word is about Christ, ultimately the word of Christ. And so faith's origination is in the word of God. We don't first have faith and then we take faith back to the scripture. We first read scripture or hear the word of God proclaimed and then we believe. And so the idea here is that the universe, however permanent it may seem, however powerful and strong and you can walk on on planet earth and you can look at distant starlight and all that just seems so permanent. No, it actually isn't. Uh, The fact of the matter is that this entire universe was formed by the invisible and immaterial God and his word. So we only know that by faith. I mean, the only way you're going to come to that conviction is by faith. Science will not give you that conviction. But we believe that the invisible, immaterial God preceded the visible and material universe. Right. Now, in verse 4, we have a small transition where we start to get the examples of faith. And so we have these pre-flood examples. We're going to get Abel and Enoch and Noah. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we learn about Abel here? He says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Again, that word commended that you mentioned earlier. Mm. And then it says, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Mm. So through what means was Abel commended as righteous? And how, in what way was this a faith-filled gift? Well, what we need to understand is just the beautiful, perfect harmony of the Word of God. And we learn from Romans chapter 4 very plainly that, that Abraham and David were justified by faith. And so they hear God's word and they believe and it's credited him as righteousness. Well, this author goes even further back than Abraham, way back to the beginning, back to Abel. And Abel here is commended as righteous. On what basis? We have to believe it's on the basis of his faith. So he was justified or commended as righteous by faith alone. And how did it work? Well, I think just God gave words to Adam and then to Abel and Cain too. But he gave words to them and either they believed or they didn't. And Abel believed them and Cain didn't believe them. And it seems to me that the words that God gave to Abel and to Cain uh, had to do with animal sacrifice, had to do with the way by which he could approach God in religion, in a pattern of religious actions. And it was gonna be by blood, by blood sacrifice. The very thing that is fulfilled in Christ was originated 
in Abel. And so <clears throat> Abel, by faith, offered God animal blood because it seems very clear to me, reading between the lines, God commanded him to do it. Because when Cain did not offer animal blood, God did not look with favor on him or on his offering. So there's a, a kind of a separation there that God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain or on his offering. And then he explains it. He said Cain, he knew, was angry and jealous of his brother because he was commended as righteous and his own deeds were not commended. And God said to him, why are you angry? Why are you, why are you uh, downcast and angry toward your brother? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, and you must master it. So he gives a clear warning, but he also talks about what is right. And what is right is obedience. And it seems to me that Cain was disobedient, and Abel had been told what to do, and by faith he did it. And so in that way, he offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. They both made sacrifices. There's nothing wrong with offering vegetables. There's nothing wrong with offering any, one, any number of things. Frankly, um, first fruits from the fields were part of the Mosaic Covenant. But the primacy of animal blood as a type or symbol of the blood of Christ was clear right from the time of Abel. And so Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did, but he did it by faith. He believed God. Now, one other thing I want to say. We tend to think that back then, back in the days of Adam, back in the days of, um, of uh, Abel, Cain and Abel, and, and maybe even Noah, that they kind of were walking with God all the time and could see him. And, and No, no. I mean, God was invisible to them, just like he is for us. And so they heard from God what to do, and then they either trusted and obeyed or they didn't. So it's pretty important that we see that Abel was a man of faith, just like the author of Hebrews wants us to be. Yeah, and his example is powerful. The verse he says, through his faith, though he died, I love this, he still speaks. Yeah. So his example will be proclaimed. Uh, well, it's been proclaimed throughout redemptive history, and it'll still be proclaimed in heaven, as you talk about in your book, Heavenly Memories. Mm. Um, but of course, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to talk about the better blood, Jesus, that speaks a better word mm. than the blood of Abel. Amen. But Abel's still an example for us. He is an example. And I think the way that by faith he still speaks is because Moses wrote it down in the Genesis account. And so generations of, of God's people since that time have read the account. Yeah. And he's speaking to us by his actions alone, I think. If you look at it, I don't think that Abel says anything in the Bible. Does he? Does Abel have any words to speak? I don't think so. I actually don't think he says anything. Cain did, but I don't think Abel said anything. But he speaks by his actions and preceding his actions by his faith. He still speaks to us by his example. Yeah. Now we transition to Enoch in verse 5. He says, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so, and then in verse 6, he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's, let's talk about Enoch and, um, and why the author puts him in this list, this hall of faith, and how God just takes him. Yeah. Well, you, you have the account of, of a serial kind of um, genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and we have this kind of drone of death after Adam. Then, you know, there's just a series of Adam's sons, his descendants, one after the other, and so-and-so lived so many years and gave begat or became the father of so-and-so, and after he became the father of so-and-so, so many more years, and then he died. And then the next one lived so many years and became the father of the next guy in the genealogy. And then he lived so many years and had other sons and daughters, and then he died. And this is just a regular repetition. But then along comes Enoch, and the rhythm is broken. It's the only uh, counterexample in the whole chapter in Genesis 5. And it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was taken away. He was not found because God had taken him. And so he didn't die. And this is confirmed here in this verse. Um, but the reason why uh, he was commended 
as one who pleased God is because of his faith. And so he's chosen here. Now, we need to just link it together with what we get from Genesis 5. He walked with God. Yeah. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is giving us here. That's what he wants us to do. Yeah. What to he wants us, us to do. Let us draw near. That was yes, draw near, walk with God. Again, remember, the life of faith is temporary. It's for this earth. We don't need it in heaven. We won't need faith in heaven because we'll see him face to face. We will definitely walk with God by sight, not by faith in heaven. But now we can only do it by faith, not by sight. And so Enoch is an example of someone who lived his daily life, every moment of his life, under the gaze of God. He saw him who is invisible, as it says later about Moses. Enoch was that kind of man. It also says the same about Noah, who we're about to talk about, but Noah walked with God. And so the idea here, the author to Hebrews wants these Hebrew Christians to be like Enoch, to walk with God in the midst of circumstances that are difficult, trials and all that, to see him who is invisible to walk with God. And so Enoch was commended based on his faith as one who pleased God. And so he was taken from this life and he was given a very, very unusual privilege. And that is the privilege of departing from this earth without dying. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't imagine that he's in his mortal body up in heaven. I had a discussion about this exact thing yesterday after worship about Enoch and Elijah and what happened to their bodies. Are they in them now? Do they have resurrection bodies now? All of these speculative questions that I have a hard time answering. I do know very strongly from 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So I don't imagine that Enoch and Elijah are in some ethereal regions still in their flesh and blood bodies. So I think that they are absent from the body present with the Lord, but that's speculative. All I know is both of them were given privileges of departing from the surface of the earth in a unique way, not by death. So Enoch is an example of a life of faith, and he could not be found, for God had taken him away. It's, you get the feeling that they looked for him, you know? Just like uh, Elisha and the prophets and all that wanted, well, the prophets wanted Elisha to go look for Elijah. And he's like, I don't want to, he's gone. But, you know, they, they're looking for Enoch. Where can we, we can't find Enoch any, anywhere. And they couldn't find him because God had taken him. Yeah. In verse six, which I quoted a minute ago, the author makes this astonishing statement that without faith, it is impossible to please God. What does this teach us about all other religions, all other means of trying to get into heaven, and any other system of thought? What does this teach us about that? Well, everything we do in the body is either pleasing or displeasing to God. And so Enoch was commended as someone who pleased God. And nothing we do apart from faith is pleasing to God. Anything that does not come from faith is sin. But faith there in Romans 14.23 specifically means faith in Jesus Christ. Right. So we can't just be people of faith, talking about Muslims and Hindus and you know who knows what faith all. Faith in the triune God who revealed himself in Christ. Yes, yes. And it's, yes especially uh, believing that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and so that's the essential confession of faith. And so if you have that faith, you are essentially to the core of your being, pleasing to God. He's pleased with you. Even if your actions and thoughts don't always please him, you are fundamentally pleasing to him by faith because you are in Christ. You are seen to be righteous in Christ. That's the power of justification by faith. And so you are pleasing to him. But then we're told in Ephesians we're supposed to find out what pleases the Lord. And what is it that pleases him? This, this verse says it's faith that pleases him. Things that you do by faith. Go back to the original definition. Things that you do based on the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, both positive and negative. If you go put sin to death, you're in, a, you're in a sinful, habitual pattern. You're enslaved to some either lawful pleasure or illicit pleasure. Either way, talked about this yesterday in the sermon, either honey or poison. You're enslaved in some way to honey or enslaved in some way to poison, and you break the chains of that by the power of the Spirit. You'll please God because you did it by faith. And if you go serve him in some way, evangelize, uh, share the gospel with somebody, uh, go on a mission trip, you know, this is what pleases God. But the author puts it negatively in verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you don't, first of all, if you're not a Christian, you're not pleasing to God. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter if you see, you know, an old woman slip and fall and you immediately go help her and maybe even pay for her medical bills. You do that as an atheist. You do it as a Hindu, a Muslim. None of what you did is pleasing to him. 
And that may seem harsh, but it's just the fundamental issue. Your motives are wrong. You're not doing it for the glory of the triune God. It's just wrong and it's not pleasing to him. But in Christ, you are able to please him. And without faith, nothing you do is pleasing. Not everything I do, Joel, sadly, not everything I do is by faith. None of my sins are done by faith. I wouldn't do it if I were seeing Jesus face to face at that moment. And so if I don't have faith at any moment, what I'm doing at that moment is not pleasing to him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yeah. Let's talk about this motivation for rewards. He says, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I know you've already mentioned them kind of in the assurance of things hoped for. Yeah. But just tease it out again. How are these two things of God's existence and that he rewards those who seek him, how are those integral to the life of faith? Right. It's just a very strong statement. You have to believe in rewards. And you have to believe that persistently seeking God, a life of persistently seeking God, I think that's the same as Enoch walking with God. Mm -hmm. So you're just seeking him. You're seeking his face. You're seeking to please him. You're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. A lot of seeking words we could use. But your heart is after God and after the things of God. Okay, if that's not how you are, you're not going to be pleasing God. But if you do seek him, you must believe, of course, that he exists. Why would you seek a God that doesn't exist? That's a waste of your time. But you believe in his existence. But more than that, you believe that you will be rewarded for seeking him. You have to, and, and it's not even an option. You have to believe in rewards. Now, first of all, I want to talk about the reward, the central reward. There is no greater than this reward because it says plainly that you are seeking him. And so the reward is God himself. As it says in Genesis 15, 1, God said to Abram, who later had his name changed to Abraham, he said, do not fear, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. I like that translation best of all. I am your reward. He had given up on the on the, the the plunder from the battle of the of the kings in Genesis 14, and he said, "I don't want anything. I don't want the king of Sodom making me rich." And so he walked away from that empty-handed. And God said, "Basically, well done. Don't worry about that because I am your reward." And so we have to believe that if we seek God with all our heart, we will find Him, and He will be perfectly satisfying to us. But then secondly, we have to believe that God is not unjust, Hebrews 6.10. He will reward actions and deeds by expressing, I think, his pleasure. I was pleased with that. That pleased me. And so we should stack up, stock up, treasure up as many rewards as possible in heaven. It's not an option. It's actually required in order to please God. He will reward the life of, of suffering service to him. He will reward money that you give away for the care of the poor and needy. He will reward when you give a, a banquet and you invite people who can't repay you, be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. All of these things speak to rewards. I don't know why it is. I think Christians are squeamish about talking about rewards. Like, no, no, I don't want anything. I just It's enough for me just to please God and things like that. It's like, but that's not biblical. We're supposed to actually be delighted in and excited about our rewards because our rewards are God-centered. God expressing his pleasure to us about the good things that we did. I think it's a really important teaching, and I think the more you emphasize that, it, it strengthens faith because it is the assurance of things hoped for. So we're looking to those rewards. We're looking ahead. We're living for the next life. It's like investing for the future Absolutely. with a guaranteed investment. That's it. Um, you just get it after you die. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, we need to see how God-centered all of them are. Any, any crowns, any, any emblems of honor that we have in heaven, they're all God-centered. What makes them special is that God, our Father, has given them to us, effectively saying, I am pleased with what you did in this moment or that moment. So they're very God-centered things. They're not idolatrous at all because even in the rewards, we're seeking him. It's like I'm giving to this poor person because I want to please God. I'm sharing the gospel right now because I love Christ. I, you know, it's always God-centered what we're doing. Yeah. The final example that we're going to talk about today is Noah. He says, By faith Noah, being warned by God, concerning events as yet unseen, that's kind of back goes to back to chapter one. 3 and, and verse 1, or verse 3 and verse 1, uh, in reverent fear, constructs an ark for the salvation, for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Mm -hmm. So what is the example of Noah? How does this provide 
a kind of a different example, but how does this add to the, the pantheon of, of, the, of the Hall of Faith? Yeah, so we go, we go to the very end of the verse. He became an example of those that are justified by faith. So that just goes to what I was just saying a few minutes ago. Even though the clearest articulation of that doctrine is in Romans chapter 3 and 4, this author is saying the same thing. Uh, the heroes of old were justified. They were declared righteous by faith alone, not by their good works. However, Noah had some significant good works, and that's what the author is dealing with here. So, again, the big picture in, in Hebrews 11 is the life of faith always produces works. It was a very active life that these people lived. They did things in space and time. They did things on planet Earth. And so Noah walked with God. He was righteous in his generation, which was a very rare thing back then because the overwhelming, almost everybody on planet Earth was wicked except for Noah and his family, his sons and their wives and his wife. So it's eight people. Other than that, everybody else gets swept away by the flood. And so Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. And so God came and commanded him to do something preposterous, to build an ark, to build this massive ark why should he do it? Because a flood was coming and he feared it. And so, so that gets to the negative aspect of things to come. Yeah. Right? The conviction is not seen. There's no there's no evidence of a flood. There's no there's there's nothing. It's just God's word. Flood's coming. And he believed that the one who to, who spoke it never lies, cannot lie. And he said, A flood's coming, a flood's coming. And if he said the only way to escape is build an ark, I need to build an ark. And if I don't build it, I will die, me and my family. And so he in holy fear fear of God and fear of the coming flood. Well, that becomes a type and a shadow of the real flood that's to come. Right. The, the worldwide flood in which everybody drowned is nothing compared to the flood of God's wrath and judgment that follows Judgment Day. And why do I say that? Well, simply because all the flood did is take people's temporary physical lives. But Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, can do nothing more to you. But I'll tell you who to fear the one who, after the death of the body, has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that's the real flood. That's the real wrath of God. And so Noah becomes a picture of someone who feared the wrath to come, in holy fear, did what God told him to do to escape. Now, the building of the ark is a physical thing. I believe in a literal ark. I believe in literal animals, literal giraffes, and literal snails that came on there and all that. I believe in all that. But I also believe it's a type and a shadow of Christ. Basically, that's the city of refuge. It's the tower of refuge. It's the place where you can go to escape the wrath. And you need to get on the ark. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. Outside of the ark, there is no salvation. No salvation. And there's one door. One door, and God shuts it and at the end. And so that's the, the, the day of salvation. God will end it. It's not going on forever. So the, the time of amnesty, the time of the king saying, I'm willing to forgive you, it will end at some point. You know, and I think for individuals, it ends the day they die. The ark, the door shuts when they die. And so the idea here is that Noah gives us an example of the negative aspect of faith. He feared and acted. And so for me, trying to escape hell is a totally valid motive for coming to Christ, just as trying to get to heaven positively is a totally valid motive for coming to Christ. It's best if you see both sides of that equation. It's like, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. For both of those reasons, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I like that summary. He feared and acted. So, yeah, I want and to And saved his family. And, and I love that family aspect. For me as a father, you also, Joel, as a father, your husband and father, you got kids. You know, it's by crafting through the Word of God the ark, you know, spiritually, metaphorically, in their hearts that they see the need to leave this wicked world and come into Christ, come into his kingdom. Uh, that's how we save our family. You know, there is a judgment coming, and I want all of my, my wife and all of my kids to be saved. And so that's the, the idea of Noah's faith. I want to pick up on that last thing. As you mentioned the family aspect, he saved his household. But then at the end of the verse it says he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So there's, there's, a, there's a bigger family here. Heir of the righteousness that is by faith. That word heir is very powerful and provocative. I think generally we think of an inheritance that's yet to come. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will be heirs of the, of the earth. They will, be, they will inherit the earth. And so Noah inherited the new world that was newly, freshly cleansed by water. So that was his world. I think a little bit freaky when you're one of eight human beings on all of planet earth. I mean, that's, 
amazing and a little scary. But at any rate, even that world that he stepped out into was doomed. It was just a matter of time. And that's the world we live in now. It's doomed, as Peter says. Uh, it's being condemned by fire in the future. Yeah, he actually draws that exact same analogy. He says, just as the world was deluged with water and perished, mm-hmm. yeah. well, in the same way it's being stored up for fire. For fire. So, like the old rhyme said, God gave Noah a rainbow sign, no more water, fire next time. And so it's a powerful reminder. There is a judgment coming just as devastating as Noah's flood, but it's eternal fire. And so the idea here is he became an heir of the righteousness of faith. And the idea is that that saving gospel by which we have eternal life in heaven. Hmm. Well, do you have any other comments on verses 1 through 7 before we end the podcast? All I can say is I want to exhort myself, you, and all of our hearers to be people of faith, to feed on God's Word, to have our spiritual eyesight sharpened and strengthened so that we can see the invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. The past actions of the three heroes that we looked at here and even before that of God's creation, the present reality of God, Almighty God, ruling heaven and earth and of Jesus at the right hand of God, and the future reality of the coming judgment and wrath and also the coming beautiful world of heaven. The more vivid these invisible spiritual realities are, the holier and the more fruitful we'll be in this world. Hmm. Amen. Well, that was episode 29 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 30, Faith Looking to the Heavenly City, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. In this, we'll see a profile of Abraham and Sarah as they made their way to the promised land, looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.